Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. All right, on today's episode, I have U.S. Air Force Colonel William Young, call sign Dollar. He is the commander of the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing. And for our regular listeners, you'll know that I was able to sit down with Dollar back at AOC's convention last year. It was a great conversation. Unfortunately, it was a little too short. Uh, and so I wanted to have the opportunity to uh, sit down with him for a more in-depth conversation. Unfortunately, he's a very busy man, but I was able to, to grab him at our recent Dixie Crow conference that took place a few weeks ago uh, back at the end of March. And we had a good conversation. So I wanted to bring that to you today. Before we get to the conversation, however, you know, this has been a very busy spring defense conferences pretty much every week. And as you're listening to this episode, I am currently at AOC's Electromagnetic Warfare Gaps and Capabilities Conference out in Crane, Indiana. And so I'm sure that there'll be many good conversations to have out there and that I'll bring to you in future episodes. But, you know, the last few weeks, I had the opportunity to go to the Directed Energy Professional Society's uh, Science and Technology Conference and actually had the opportunity to run a session on EMSO out there. Uh, some of you may know, we've had a long-standing collaboration between the two organizations, DEPS and AOC, for a few years now. And it's really to basically improve cross-pollination, just kind of bringing our communities together, cross-pollinating some of the information and thoughts. And, you know, it was funny, the first year that I went there, had a lot of people come up to me and, you know, whisper, kind of like, what What are you doing here? You're, this is, you're, you're EW, we're directed energy, we're not the same. And now, you know, just a few years later, hopefully in part because of this collaboration, but it was really interesting that the entire conversation that that the whole week was about EMSO. It was about how DE, directed energy and electronic warfare have to work together for spectrum superiority. So it was a really refreshing week, uh, great conversations. And I had the opportunity to, to run a session on that. And we basically talked about how EMS superiority is really the backbone to mission success. No matter what you want to do on the multi-domain warfare front, you have to have EMS superiority first. And you can dance around all the terminology you want, but at the end of the day, you know what we do here with EW, electromagnetic spectrum operations, is critical to mission success. But a lot of the conversations we had there, uh, some of the presentations were, you know, how electronic protection is critical. We have to really be intentional and, and, and invest in that area, bring that into the community a little bit more clearly, work with directed energy. And when you talk about multifunction systems, you know, getting that, getting that system that can do both electronic warfare and directed energy all the way from anything from radio frequencies to HPM to high energy lasers, that's the way of the future. So really applaud DEPS for their work on that front and the path that they are on. I had a great chance to go to a new conference, a Society for Military History, 
to basically share our sister podcast, The History of Crows. If you have not heard that podcast, I'd encourage you to go to crows.org to download and listen to those episodes. But what was really interesting out of that one was the simple fact that an organization has we've had no engagement with over the years, you know, had presentations there talking about how important electronic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations were to 20th century warfare. So I had a chance to talk to a few folks there, and, and, and hopefully we can begin a more collaborative relationship in the future. And then last week, I had the opportunity to go to AOC's Cyber Electromagnetic Activities Conference with the Army up at Aberdeen Proving Ground. And once again, one of our signature conferences, great time to get out and learn kind of where the Army is going. And, and a lot of the conversation really focused on this trend from you know, coordinated EW systems to collaborative systems to intelligent EW systems and and really what the Army has to do across organization, training, investment. So it was a good time. I think, you know, the Army is on the right track. And I think that, you know, like all the services are doing some really good things. I, I think the challenge moving forward, of course, though, is, you know, accountability and making sure that, you know, the dollars and the authorities flow into the programs and operations as, uh, you know, we talk about at these conferences. So, you know, I applaud the Army for all the work that they've been doing, and, and I hope that success continues, and hopefully we'll be able to bring you some more information on that in the near future. But with that, I'd like to get to our interview with Dollar Young. Again, this is from Dixie Crow, but it was, a, it was a good conversation where we sat down and we were able to go a little bit more in depth on what the Air Force is doing to ensure that it can provide its piece of EMS superiority in multi-domain operations. So, Dollar, it's great to have you back on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ken, for having me. And uh, as always, thank you to the Association of Old Crows for all the great things they do for the nation and the warfighter. I always enjoy hearing you speak because for two reasons. Number one, you do a great job at really kind of bringing the problem to the forefront and talking about what the Air Force is doing, and but what we need to do as a, as a, across the services. But then also... The Air Force has made some tremendous strides over the last year, and there's still a lot of question marks in, in terms of where things are going to go in the future, but the work that's been done has been, is very encouraging because it feels like the Air Force is understanding the problem at hand and really making some bold changes. When you started the, your, your presentation, you, you talked a little bit about a, kind of a new initiative that's about two weeks old. You were your your position, the the commander position of the Spectrum Warfare Wing is now identified as Crow One, and a lot of this had to do with making clear the identity of the Spectrum Warfare Wing and 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 that organization. I wanted to, you to go start off talking a little bit about this designation because I think it's really important when we get into the discussion of culture and identity. Yeah, Ken, I think that. Uh, we are very, very fortunate to have Brigadier General T.C. Clark as the leader in the A26L at Headquarters Air Force. We recently had a meeting in San Antonio where he brought together all of the ecosystem and, and the Air Force that focuses on EW EMS operations. And a little bit about his past uh, his wing commander job was as the 8th Fighter Wing Commander at Kunsan, affectionately known as the Wolf or Wolf One. And one of General Clark's lead initiatives has been to focus on culture and to advance our culture as a group of EWEMS professionals. He designated 
the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing Commander as the Crow or Crow One. And I think it's a very, very important step forward because it really does get to our identity as a body of EWEMS professionals. And it's not about me as Crow One, but rather it recognizes the fact that organizationally, we in the United States Air Force now have a wing that is entirely focused on the delivery of EWEMS capability. And identity is such a critical piece in culture. When you're talking culture change, you have to first know who you are. And we, and I think that that's been something that has been really lacking in DoD, especially in the Air Force, probably since the early 90s. There isn't an identity, uh, a, real, a real set identity for a crow in the, in the Air Force or in DoD. Um, and so this is, this is a new step, but it's actually a really positive recognition that identity and this notion of bringing an organization together with a shared problem and a, a set of at least acceptable or shared solutions under an identity is that that's a huge uh, motivator for future change. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to the point of identity, let me give you a concrete example of what that looks like in our United States Air Force. Our wing has electronic warfare officers from several different platforms. And if you were to ask uh, one of the electronic warfare officers that flew Strike Eagles, which again, General Clark did this, asked him, hey, uh, do you identify yourself as a a WIZO, an F-15E WIZO, or do you see yourself as an F-15E EWO? And uh, the individual said, "Uh, F-15E WIZO. And then he thought about it and he said, well, actually, sir, probably a a better answer is the F-15E EWO. And again, it's that identity. I believe it's Carl Bilder wrote the book, The Masks of War, and where he analyzed the cultures of each of the services. And he talked about the United States Air Force worshiping at the altar of technology, uh, his words, not mine. Um, But I think his point is important because we associate ourselves with our platforms increasingly. And the challenge with that becomes there. Electronic warfare, uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations is not a platform. It's something that crosses across uh, multiple platforms. It's something that we can't do even at the pointy edge without the support of a broad ecosystem. That ecosystem includes, of course, our flyers, but it includes the maintenance professionals that maintain the equipment. It includes the intelligence specialists that prepare the intel that we need to effectively engage. It includes the acquisition professionals that acquire the systems that are on the platforms. It includes academia that does the research that will lead to future capabilities. It includes industry that provides the raw materials and and those systems that we within the spectrum warfare wing are fortunate to be able to integrate and deliver as capabilities to our warfighters. All of us have to work together. And it's just so happened that, uh, again, as, as as the crow, Uh, I'm privileged to lead the team that's on the pointy edge of pulling all that great capability, all those great ideas together, and putting them in the hands of our frontline warfighters. And and, and that ecosystem is growing exponentially. You know, it's it's not just the the sectors that are involved, but 
what each of those sectors is responsible for doing that is in some ways uh, you know growing faster than maybe we can keep up with. But I wanted to touch on that just a little bit more because I think before we started recording here today, uh, we were talking, I was interviewing for the history of crows and you know we were talking about back in Vietnam, uh, a story related about an EWO on, on a particular platform in, in Vietnam. And, and the EWO was saying, you don't want to hear from me or know that I exist during the operation because if you do, something's wrong. And that's true, but that speaks to a really almost narrowly defined role that EW or the EWO played in the Air Force or in the military services at the time. Today, that's not the case because it's much more than survivability. It's It touches every aspect of operations and will continue to grow in its importance in operations to the point where we can't expect to go in and succeed or have an advantage unless we start with the EMS. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on this notion of, you know, when we talk identity, we're not just talking how we used to think of ourselves, but we're thinking we're, we're coming up with a new uh, interpretation or image of ourselves moving forward and and trying to put that into an or fit that into an organization has got to be a really difficult task. Yeah, it is a, a massive challenge, but I'm blessed to have a great team, uh, both of leaders and um, a multidisciplinary group of amazing airmen, officers, enlisted, uh, civilian, and contractors that help us uh, work, that help me lead it, but they do all the hard work. In terms of a specific example of this broader uh, use of the electromagnetic spectrum and its imperative to warfighting and competition, what I will point to is the Air Force's recent uh, rollout of the framing of what JADC2 looks like. It was about an eight-page paper that was released a couple of weeks ago, but it talked about JADC2 at the heart of it being the ability to sense, make sense, and act. And what I would point to folks and highlight is the fact that we sense almost entirely through the electromagnetic spectrum, period, dot. So there's no way that you can do JADC2 without the ability to sense. And you have to be able to sense accurately. And adversaries will try to contest our ability to sense. That's the history of warfare. It's just that now we've elevated it to such a level where that ability to sense is absolutely fundamental and critical. And we are the organization that is charged with ensuring that our warfighters have the tools that are required to do that sensing in and through the electromagnetic spectrum. But not just sensing, but then action. So if you consider the fact that our orders and directions for how we integrate as a warfighting team are largely ex are almost exclusively delivered through the electromagnetic spectrum. I joke about the fact that if you look on your operational view one or your OV1, you'll find a bunch of lightning bolts. Prior to 25 June of 22, there was no single, I'm sorry, of 21, there was no single organization that was charged with making sure that those lightning bolts were there in time of conflict. So coming back to JADC2's process model, if you want to call it that, of sensing, then making sensing and acting, 
The sensing is almost entirely through the electromagnetic spectrum. The action, once, the, once we've made sense of things, the action or the direction or the guidance that's given to integrate and connect all those individual capabilities into a single warfighting entity is delivered through the EMS, period. And one step further, the, the making sense piece of it is also because you're talking a lot of the cognitive artificial uh, machine learning AI that's really kind of the focus of future EWU spectrum technologies that, that you can't really sense accurately unless you have the technology to make sense of it. So, I mean, really all three of those equally play a role in that. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. That um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, that is going to be fun. It's fundamental today in the commercial world, and it will increasingly become fundamental to the nature of warfare. We know it, our adversaries know it, and so it's a competition. But I think that it, I'm glad you brought that up because your ability to make sense, it's the old garbage in, garbage out. And your input is coming from sensor data, which requires sensor engineering of the platforms, which, again, is what the professionals in the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing do day in and day out. Now, I, I, I promised you before we started that I wouldn't go through your entire presentation because, uh, you know, your, your time is limited. But your first slide, <laughs> you, you had a slide, of, here's where we're going. And you said that the statement was to deliver ad hoc novel kill webs on demand. That's great. A lot of key words, though, that I don't know how familiar DOD military services are with the notions of ad hoc and novel and, of course, then on demand. So I wanted you to kind of unpack that statement because I think it's a great statement, but how are we prepared to really execute that statement and, and what is the role of the 350th and changing the way that so so that in future combat we can on an ad hoc basis have deliver novel kill webs on demand. We can actually circle back to how it fits into the JADC2 uh, concept or process of sensing, making sense, and then action. Whereas where the kill web is how we're going to be able to action things. So I, I think folks generally understand that where we're talking about the capability to be able to connect sensors to shooters. Again, there's, there's far more to it than that. So, so I won't, uh, for the sake of brevity, go into all that. But if you look at that's where what we really want to be able to do is to be able to prosecute a fight at a point in time of our choosing. But if you look at the nature of ad hoc, that goes to the ability to go beneath the skin of our various platforms and be able to view the individual line replaceable units and increasingly the reprogrammable multifunction arrays and the software defined radios that are on all of our platforms and be able to now not be limited to that platform itself, but be able to look at platform A that's got some uh, set of software-defined radios, reprogrammable multifunction arrays, platform B, which has its own set of uh, software-defined radios and reprogrammable multifunction arrays, and platform C, which has its own individual composition of software-defined radios and reprogrammable multifunction arrays. And then now be able to take some of A, some of B, some of C, and compose those into a new system. And when I say system, what I mean is that it might be that the 
sensing capability of platform A combines with the sensing of platform B to provide a cue to platform C. The ad hoc nature is based upon the fact that before now, platform C would have had to do everything by itself. And so the only way to make platform C more effective in combat would have been either upgrade it or buy a brand new platform C, which our acquisition professionals are working very, very hard to be able to do that more rapidly. But you're just limited by acquisition physics, I'll call it, in terms of how fast you can get new hardware and how fast you can get new uh, operational flight programs onto the systems. But what we're talking about here is the ability at, let's say, an A space to uh, forward as the Air Force begins to really integrate that concept and uh, prevent or present targeting problems for our adversaries to be able to now compose or force package at the component level. I'm a weapons officer. We study the ability to force package at the platform level. How do I put together strikers and bombers with seed assets in order to kill a target? But what we're talking about here in terms of ad hoc is to go within the skin of the platforms and just pull together those capabilities we need in order to solve the specific tactical problem for today. Idea being that we'll do it again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. So that's the ad hoc nature. So now let's talk about the novel. The novel means that we can present things that have never been seen before by an adversary. So returning to my example about combining the LRU or the software-defined radios from platform A and platform B to support a shooter platform C, the novel nature is platform A and platform B might be two different airframes that have never work together before and to, to deliver that capability. Maybe platform A and platform B have supported platform C in some ways. Uh, maybe they're provided fighter cover. Maybe platform C is a bomber. And platform A and platform B are fighters. So yeah, in terms of escort or fighter cap, they've done that. But taking sensor data or sensor engineering data from platform A and platform B to be able to provide threat warning for platform C or targeting data may never have been done before. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support 
And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. One of the, the challenges that we've had uh, from AOC perspective with advocacy over the years is, you know, trying to get leaders, stakeholders comfortable with the familiar, being able to trust the familiar, whether it's the legacy system or even just the capability that we have in the field today, trying to get people to understand the role that traditional EW plays. How do you then change the thinking and the culture so that the stakeholders, the the upper echelon commanders are comfortable and trustworthy with the novel, not just the familiar. Yeah, I think that novelty is a blessing and a curse. Novelty provides the ability to increasingly place adversaries on the horns of the dilemma. Part of the nature of the dilemma that you pose is something that's never been seen before. So today we're limited by our TTPs, but what we're talking about going forward is the ability to throw new capabilities at them. It's the equivalent of being able to have a new app, for example, for your iPhone that gives you the ability to behave in a way that you've never behave before. I know when I get new apps, I start to change my behavior. And if you use that as just a sort of rough microcosm of what it is we're talking about, if we could put the equivalent of new apps on our airplanes that maybe, for example, use a new waveform that's never been used before or couples a couple of different waveforms off of different platforms to produce a synergistic effect on a target, that's novelty. And so the blessing of that is 
bad guys haven't seen it. And if you look at the ability to use that novelty or newness to counter AI, because it's new, it was almost, you cannot be almost certain that it was not in the training data used to equip that AI. AI is awesome, but I would argue it's basically an idiot savant. It does the things you built it to do in the existing environment uh, that you had all the data for. It does it really fast and really well. But what we're talking about through novelty is the equivalent of forcing a checkers expert that is the world's greatest checker player that overnight tomorrow I'm going to tell you, and and again, automation, uh, now I'm going to make you play chess. All you know how to do is play checkers. That's novelty. And the way we deliver that, again, hypothetically, is through the introduction of new waveforms, new combined capabilities that have never been seen before. That's the novelty. So that's the positive side. Very, very effective in cause placing adversaries on the horns of a dilemma, especially when coupled with new tactics, techniques, and procedures. That's the positive. Now, the challenge is, and I think this kind of goes to your, to your question, is how do we make sure we introduce more confusion on the adversaries than we do to ourselves? And the only way to really get after that is through practice. So we have to be very, very uh, deliberate in terms of making sure that our warfighters are getting the opportunity through sets and reps uh, to be able to practice these new things and be able to get after what ifs. That provides them the opportunity to gain familiarity and ultimately trust with these new capabilities. And that also speaks to why initiatives uh, such as the Virtual Test and Training Center initiative that the Air Force and uh, my boss, Major General Cunningham, is championing in the Warfare Center is so important. A lot of that does get into, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about the iPhone aspect, because I think there are some parallels to that, you know, you know I, I have... 150 whatever apps, I know which ones I'm going to use because they're the ones that update automatically. And so when they're updated, I know I'm conditioned to be more comfortable using them because I trust the app provider, Apple, to update them as as necessary. And when a new capability is introduced and they say, you need this, I'm more likely to say, okay, yeah, I do need that because I know I know how it's going to be updated. I know that um, based on my behavior, this is this is what's necessary. So, when you when you try to translate that, a lot of the, the this notion of trust really goes down to, back to you. And you were talking about kind of introducing that and getting people familiar with it, using it, whether it's testing, training, getting people to understand that the app that they have there is there for a reason, and they can use that with the understanding that it's going to work and do what it needs to be done. We don't ever sit back and think how these apps work. But we know that they work and we then realize we need them. So what are some of the ways that we can do to get our warfighters across platforms, across mission areas to be more comfortable using EMS technologies in the field so that this level of trust is built up, which would then, in theory, allow the Spectrum Warfare Wing and your partners and other services to provide these capabilities with immediate effect in, in, in the battle space? Again, Ken, a great question. And let's maybe walk through a hypothetical use case or value chain of what that might look like. So you can imagine industry partners coming up with 
a capability. Maybe it's a new algorithm. Maybe it's a new waveform. And that waveform could then come into what we are calling the attack app store. So it's uh, very much similar to the way you think of the app, your metaphor with the iPhone. And so in the Apple has its universe of developers. Uh, we will have our universe of developers. The capability or the app, uh, be it whatever form it takes, comes into what, like I said, what we're calling our attack app store inside the Spectrum Warfare Wing. Once it gets to us, we've got to host, test, integrate, and deliver. And so the hosting is what occurs on TAC app. And then what we've got to do is test it to make sure that Apple doesn't just take anybody's app and put it on the uh, App Store. It goes through some level of testing to make sure it adheres to the standards. Uh, you can expect to see sometime in the very near future a set of missionware standards aligned to, of course, the open architectures such as uh, SOSA, but also compliant with uh, things like Big Iron Software Framework, for example. So it's now made available to Warf. So once we've hosted it and tested it, uh, then we need to integrate it. So making sure that it can fit on particular platforms. And so maybe this particular Missionware app is applicable to Compass Call, and maybe you can put it on an Angry Kitten. So that's the integration, making sure that that works. And then we deliver it and make it available uh, to the warfighters. And then they could take it and download it, load it on the jet and go fly it on new, uh, we'll call it a sandbox, Playas, for example, in New Mexico. Gives a great example for them and their daily sorties to Playas to be able to gain that familiarity with those missionware apps. And it does a couple of things. Number one, warfighters get familiar with the individual apps. So they're seeing they're developing uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures to optimize its capability. But perhaps more importantly, they're gaining trust in the process. So it requires that individual wing commander to figure out, okay, am I just going to let uh, my line crews uh, download the particular apps that they want to load up and fly? Probably not. There's got to be some internal wing process. So it provides a venue for the, uh, my fellow wing commanders at the pointy edge for the operational units to then figure out what's, what's their part. So we're going to make it available to them. But in terms of how you develop the TTPs to employ it, what the processes are, that's got to be figured out. And that's their uh, responsibility to do. My job is just to provide the, the capability. And if you'll allow me, let me just say a little bit about uh, how what we're doing fundamentally, I believe, changes uh, how capability, uh, EWEMS capability is delivered. If we look at it today, I build a radar warning receiver as because I need threat warning. Or let me say that uh, backward, uh, a little differently. I need threat warning. Everybody would acknowledge that. And so I build a radar warning receiver uh, to provide threat warning. And what you have is you start with the function uh, or capability, threat warning. And then we go figure out what the radar warning receiver needs to be uh, look like or built. And that's the form. And many of your listeners have probably heard the adage, form follows function. And today, that, that's what we do. But what I'm proposing and what we're working towards is the ability to break those things apart. And what I mean by that is we'll return to my earlier example about capability off of uh, platform A uh, supporting 
platform C. Maybe platform C does lacks the ability to have threat warning in a particular band, but maybe uh, platform A has that capability so it can see in that particular band and provide the threat warning, again, functionality or capability that platform C needs. Where we're going is the equivalent in this case of threat warning as a service. And so now if I'm in the jet, do I really care the form that delivers the functionality? I would argue that generally no. What I really care about is the functionality or the capability. That's what I really need. And so where we're going with this is increasingly software-defined capability that now you get that threat warning as a service, but it could also be targeting as a service. It could also be assessment as a service. Again, you just need the warfighter to make providing uh, the warfighter the ability to make sense of the situation, the second part of uh, the JADC2, again, make sense. And we're providing that increasingly through software-defined capabilities, which won't necessarily limit us to a single platform. And, and that gets into the multifunction effort that is really kind of sweeping this, this space. And you know, you, you talk about some of the initial operating capabilities that you're delivering, um, Missionware, which is a Stitches, which I won't make you go into the acronym, It's a but Stitches, and then, of course, uh, AI, Cognitive EW. So, uh, and, and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, you know, maybe you can go in just briefly and, and talk about each of those because that's part of your kind of three-pronged strategy to, to build an organization, reach those IOC capabilities, and then, of course, su- provide support. All three of those you're, you're pursuing at one time. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Yes. And so how do you kind of know when to kind of focus your energies on one or the other because they all need to be developed at the same time and they can all hold each other back at the same time if not done properly. Yeah, it is a problem of interactive complexity where the complexity, it would be complicated each of the three pieces by themselves or each of the three uh, lines of effort by themselves. But as you point out correctly, they're all highly dependent upon each other, which generates a significant degree of interactive complexity overall. And the way my team and I work through that is largely through the rapid development of prototypes and ideas. So let me use a specific example of what we're doing for Stitches. Uh, Stitches gives us the ability to tie together components that were never meant to uh, work together. And what we're doing in our labs to facilitate not only our understanding of Stitches, uh, but being able to improve our capability delivery internally is we've done an experiment and we're at the point of of a basic prototype where we've been able to automate our testing process in one of our squadrons by taking two totally different industry devices that, again, were never meant to work together. And in partnership with with our uh, industry uh, partners, we're able to uh, gain the insight into both devices. And then we basically built a way to translate between the two. So our test generator and our testing mechanism, we tied them together. And before what was required was we would have to burn uh, the data on one uh, and then, you know, manually translate it, or or, I'm sorry, manually transport it to the other system. 
But by being able to automate the process by connecting the two things or stitch them together, that's given us the ability to uh, exponentially decrease the amount of time required to run a full gamut of, of tests. That's a, a significant breakthrough capability, but that goes to how we're able to build a prototype and then put it in the lab and then learn, start to learn from it. And so the insights we're gaining from that is now tied to our mission data, which is another one of our capabilities is helping us develop mission data faster. But we're also understanding that in the decision-making process, there's opportunities for the insertion of machine learning capabilities. But that also ties to how we are able to build out our future infrastructure and what that might look like. Because now, if I can connect a bunch of stuff, then that alleviates the need for certain things that I might otherwise buy. Uh, potentially, I can also decrease my manning. Not overall, but I can decrease the manning for that particular task. The folks that, you know, that there is a human who's part of their daily workflow is transferring the data between those two systems. That's wasting that human's bandwidth. So I can repurpose those folks to be able to get after the work queue for all the other stuff that we know that we need to be uh, getting after. So see how it, how it kind of provides uh, one particular prototype testing in the lab, provides us the opportunity to sense and learn about a whole bunch of other things within the wing. And then we take those learning points and then that gets built into our plan going forward. And we just step after step after step after step after. Repurposing of people is an interesting notion because, you know, we, we've often talked about when new organizations stand up or new missions stand up, we're like, well, who's actually going to do it? Because we have to have the training, we have to have the people, the intellectual capital there. How much of what the Spectrum Warfare Wing, though, is one of the things I'm very interested in is this notion of embedding uh, warfighters, people in different missionaries into your efforts so that they are familiar with the capability at the prototype level, at the lab level, so that when they go back out to the field, they might be a pilot, they might be an infantry, they might be something else, but they have have experience seeing what you're doing at the prototype lab level. How's the wing approaching something like that where you can embed and repurpose other people to let them see what you're doing so that the first time that they're interacting with novel EMS capabilities, it's not in the field, but earlier in, in the development. Let me give you a concrete example of, of how that's playing out in terms of our engineering career force. There's several programs that are open today that seeks to take engineers and place them into organizations that have an operational focus. And we've been taking advantage of that at a, a very sort of, a very low rate, uh, just in terms of throughput, throughput uh, and trying to get our process tight. But we were able to take an engineer from the test world who we brought in for about four months to work with our team and helped us develop and advance the ball on our machine learning. And then he went back to, uh, to his organization equipped with those insights and now they're better able to test not just today, uh, but the future capabilities that we think are coming. And so it speaks to how we can tighten that connection between operations and the test community. So that's, that's one concrete example. I'll give you one more. Our wing has several employment officers. These are individuals that have a flying background, but now they're a little bit further on in their career. 
and they're brought in to be the user representatives for the particular weapon systems that we support inside the Spectrum Warfare Wing. And their role is to do exactly that. We are still a large, uh, heavy engineering organization. And so these the mission employment officers are able to help explain to the engineer, here's how that capability, would we think it would be used in combat, or here's how the frontline warfighter is probably going to use that. And so that individual gets a tour in the Spectrum Warfare Wing, and then they're going back out to ops. Uh, at some point in, in terms of their career progression. So it, it provides them, having spent time in the Spectrum Warfare Wing, now they're very attuned with not just how we do it today, but they've had a glimpse behind the curtain in terms of where we're trying to go. And my hope is that they'll be able to use that insight to then continue to connect with us and help us build what what right looks like in the future. Uh, I'm one of those people that I, I just I don't like to I don't like to study something. What I'd rather us do is build to learn. And part of that build to learn process is ensuring that we've got folks that represent a, a broad cross section of ideas and backgrounds. And that's how we're able to build something and learn and then figure out what the next step looks like. So last question, since we're here at Dixie Crow, just outside of Warner Robins Air Force Base, one of your sides, you were talking about the organization that exists today with Spectrum Warfare Wing, and, 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 but you're already laying out future plans. And your, the chart that you showed had you know, some solid line boxes, but then it had a couple of dotted line boxes of new organizations or groups that are going to be stood up here in the, in the near future over the next year or two. Um, and one of them is uh, Detachment 1 under the uh, 850th uh, Spectrum Warfare Group, you call that wavelength. But the plan for that is to be here at Warner Robins. Yeah, wavelength is going to be at, at uh, is uh, San Antonio. Right. Yeah. So, so one of those is the 950th Support Spectrum Warfare Group, and that's the assessment piece. And that is going to, the plan is for that to come to Robins Air Force Base. Then there's another one that is called Wavelength, which is under the 850th Spectrum Warfare Group. That's going to be somewhere else. But could you talk about these two new pieces that are on the horizon for the Spectrum Warfare Wing and what they mean to the overall organization? Yeah, let's start with the let's start with Wavelength. Wavelength will activate uh, mid-May as part of the 850th Spectrum Warfare Group, and the purpose of Wavelength is to be our digital engineering service. Uh, the wavelength will accomplish three functions for us. The first is it provides us the capability to centralize all of the wing software development under a single organization. The uh, unofficial term would be a software factory, but that's it, it's far more than that. It also will provide us a digital education capability within the wing. And what I mean by that is... I really think that we are moving very rapidly towards air, every airman as a coder. And if you're not a coder, then we at least need you to have basic software competencies. And Wavelength will provide that across the whole wing so that we can ensure that we're raising the capability of all and the familiarity with all of our airmen who will be using software capabilities no matter what their jobs is. And then the third piece of that is they'll be focusing on 
innovation and in accordance with the 850th Spectrum Warfare Group's mission of research and engineering, they will provide a readily accessible belly button to be able to plug in to all and access all of the great capabilities that are going on in terms of this space out in the commercial world and academia and across the services. Now, the second new organization is a little bit further out, uh, starting to uh, get Bodies, I believe the timeline is in FY23 with a 25 uh, target activation date is the 950th Spectrum Warfare Group, and they're, which will be uh, here at Robbins Air Force Base. Their broad missions is the conduct of assessment supporting EWEMS superiority, as well as broader mission assurance across the uh, department. Right now, the plan is to stand up three new squadrons uh, here in Robbins or within the state of Georgia. Uh, they will begin as detachments and they are scheduled to, and then we will grow them over time. And their planned activation date is in FY25 for the first squadron that we believe will focus on multi-domain operational assessments. The second squadron will stand up in FY26 and their focus, primary focus, will be 5th Gen and beyond assessments. And then the third squadron will stand up in FY27 and with the objective of focusing on advanced data analytics and continuous assessment. The wing currently has an assessment squadron, the 87th Electronic Warfare uh, Squadron at Eglin, and it is still to be decided by senior leadership whether that organization will come to Robbins or the flag will come to Robbins or it will stay at Eglin. Again, all that is uh, still being decided by our senior Air Force leadership, so it would be premature for me to speculate on that. But what I will say is that the squadron will be part of the group, the 950th Spectrum Warfare Group. Where it actually lives, again, is, is pre-decisional, and our senior leaders will uh, decide that. Well, well, thank you, Dollar. That's all the time we have for the show today. Really appreciate you taking some extra time after your presentation this morning to, to sit down with me and, and talk a little bit more about your message to the group. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me again. Thank you, and uh, thanks again to the uh, 8OC and uh, all of your partners. Uh, we, we can only do this together. This is a a whole of nation uh, competition, and we will succeed uh, together as a nation, as a team. So thank everyone for the part that you play in that. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, Colonel Dollar Young, for taking time out of his schedule to join me for this uh, conversation. I look forward to many more in the future. If you'd like to learn more about the Association of Old Crows, feel free to visit us on our website at crows.org slash podcasts. You can also check out our sister podcast, The History of Crows. Uh, we are working on a new batch of episodes coming out, hopefully, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. As always, we welcome your thoughts on how we can continue to improve both of our podcasts and engage our listeners. So take some time to rate us and comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.